1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Welcome to episode 502 with my guest Charlie Springer. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Yeah, maybe you're here by mistake. Maybe you fucked up, maybe you're all thumbs on your phone or your computer. I wonder if there was ever somebody born with all thumbs. It certainly would be easy for them to show their approval of something. <laughs> uh the website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod also the social media handle. You can follow us at Uh this interview today with my buddy Charlie. Um I Shut up, Paul. Just let the interview roll. I don't know why I feel like I gotta prepare you. Oh, actually, there is something I did want to say. The audio quality on this, um, because of COVID, I'm having to do some remote recordings, which I always tried to avoid doing. But um, I had to record Charlie remotely, and eh, the audio quality could, could definitely be better. But I think it's a, I think it's a great interview, and. I didn't realize until after I recorded it that instead of using the microphone I'm talking into right now, I had chosen the microphone on my computer, which uh, is not the best sounding, but there you have it. I want to read a couple surveys before we get to the oh um before we get to to those two things uh if you are considering helping out the podcast financially that would be awesome we could definitely use some support either PayPal or Patreon um either one time donation or recurring monthly would really love that if you could uh, if you could do it every little bit counts and the other thing another way you can help without spending a dime is subscribe to the podcast so whenever there's a new episode it gets downloaded and uh, that uh, that helps us sell ads the more downloads we have all right this is from the psych ward experiences uh, survey and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves angry sad lola and she was hospitalized for depression and a suicide attempt she writes that was when i was in my 20s. I was at a private hospital in their psych ward in Texas. I was there for a month. There were no windows, and I only saw outside through a window when I went out to do crafts in a different section outside the ward, yet still in the hospital. I spent a lot of time reading, TV, playing cards, or board games with fellow patients. This one had a lot of wives, professionals, and younger youths. It was very weird, uh, the wives of professionals and younger youths. It was very weird in which it was treated as a place to work on ourselves, but one thing is common. But the one thing is common was we all had husbands slash parents who just couldn't deal with us for a period of time and sent us away, or at least it felt that way, yes, and just needed one another that had similar issues to talk to. For me, it was like group therapy, a meeting retreat for a month. Yes, I saw my therapist and psych doctor a few times there and was on meds. However, I did not learn that the person who was dangerous was my spouse in our relationship, and eventually my family from California had to come out to pick me up as my doctor felt my spouse wasn't healthy for me to return to, which in the end was correct. I love love when somebody finds a big missing piece of the puzzle. And you just feel feel yourself moving forward. That that is it's such a great antidote for the hopelessness. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Love Survey. Uh this is filled out by Little Spoon and they write, I love taking my dog for a run at five in the morning when everyone else is still asleep. It makes me feel like I have the world in myself for an hour or so and that the sun is just rising for me. Watching all the beautiful colors slowly peek up over the mountains right as I hit my second wind is the most peaceful and beautiful moment. I love when my husband, who is a car enthusiast and avid Hot Wheel collector, asks me to open one of his Hot Wheels while he stands there watching with more giddiness and excitement than a child-opening Christmas presents. (laughs) I love when my dog gets a sudden burst of happy energy immediately after pooping, and she starts sprinting around the yard with such a happy derp face as if she's exclaiming, I pooped, I pooped, I pooped. That, That too makes me that makes me laugh. Uh, my, my late dog, Ivy, would, would do that. But for her first like five or six strides after she pooped, she would keep her ass really low to the ground. <laughs> like so, so ridiculous looking. I miss her. Oh, my God. I love the moment when you feel the sudden burst of inspiration and contentment when you realize you're with the perfect people at the perfect time of day listening to the best music and everything just feels beautiful and you can tell that everyone else feels it too. That's a great one. I love cracking into a watermelon and finding that all your hard work of thumping and weighing each one has actually paid off and it tastes amazing. Thank you for that. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Um, I say it every week. I love my therapist, and I'm a big fan of online therapy, especially, especially BetterHelp. And uh, if you're interested in trying it out, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And uh, if they have a counselor they think is a good match for you, they will pair you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling. See if online counseling is a good thing for you. And you you need to be over 18. If you're between 13 and 17, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com and then you can get the ball rolling on parental consent and satisfying all the legal requirements in 50 states. Uh, and then finally, this is from the some Moments survey filled out by uh, an agender person who calls themselves uh, River. And they write, after being diagnosed with PTSD and learning about all the symptoms, so much of my mind and past started to make sense. Suddenly I had words like dissociation, flashbacks, and hypervigilance to help me understand my patterns of behavior. I finally began to understand myself forgive myself for things that were out of my control. This was an indescribable freedom. Recently I learned about executive dysfunction. This is a symptom of PTSD that makes it difficult to make plans, stick to a schedule, complete tasks. I thought I was just lazy. The more I thought about it I realized that executive dysfunction probably is what kept me from actually following through with my suicide plan. I'm convinced that every once in a while My mental illness symptoms are better at protecting me than I am. Every little thing feels like the end of the world
0: that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social
1: beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry
0: we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their
1: bodies well, maybe listen, thanks for coming in <laughs> i am here with my buddy charlie springer um We've known each other for, what, 10 years, maybe something like that? Longer, probably. Probably. You
0: start coming to Thursday night right around then?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: 17 years?
1: 17 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentored people who uh, have mentored me. And, you know, hanging out with somebody every Thursday night for 17 years, you get to know them. You get to know their stories. And you've been on my... Bucket listed people to record because I just love your stories, man. And in many ways, to me, you, I grew up the generation after the hippie generation. I was a, you know, a sprout when you guys were changing all the rules. And I always looked with such fasc- fascination at the things that you guys did, the things you experienced, the doors you kicked open, the mistakes that you made especially music related stuff. And to me, you're kind of like a Forrest Gump character in the music business in that you were there for so many pivotal moments in the growth of not only the hippie generation, but the music business, Um, being at Hayton Ashbury during the summer of love, being the person to open the second tower records store. Um, You know, hanging out with uh, Fleetwood Mac and George Harrison and, and and even currently what you do now, uh, which is a remastering albums of, uh, on vinyl for, for Warner brothers. So there's so many, there's so many things I want to, I want to talk about. I don't even know where to begin.
0: You can start anywhere you
1: have. <laughs> I have, a, I have well, a, let,
0: a pretty direct line to uh, all those memories. So.
1: Yes. Well, let's, Let's start with the, where you were raised. You grew up in Chicago, right? I did. I was, uh,
0: I was born in Evanston. You know that, right? Yeah. You know that area. yeah. Uh, and uh, then raised pretty much in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there was a, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a huge uh, monastery in Techney, Illinois, which was sort of between Glenview and Northbrook in that area. And uh, I was very enamored with uh, the priest that would come to our our, uh, parish and do Sunday Mass. And I was an altar boy and all that. And uh, I ended up going to the minor seminary, Divine Word Seminary, up in East Troy, Wisconsin, for three years of high school. So I started off my journey, uh, you know. Like actually in a pretty spiritual mode, thinking that I was going to be a priest. Yeah, but that uh, wasn't going to work. And in uh, yeah, 1967 white. hit, and I just like, I hitchhiked out to San Francisco, and uh, it happened to be the summer of love, and uh, I just never looked back.
1: What had drawn you to the to the seminary? Um,
0: well, I guess. Uh, my, uh, my father was an alcoholic uh, full tilt his father was an alcoholic um, and I didn't want to be like my dad I, I, I distinctly remember that and so I think
1: How, how'd that work out <laughs> it's
0: the weirdest. it's the weirdest thing I mean for everything that he did I did it worse in Spain <laughs> but uh but I think as a as a young kid, I, I aspired to. Uh, I just looked up to these priests, I guess, as as being how I wanted to uh, be in the world, as opposed to being like my dad. So, but I, I it wasn't going to work. I mean, I was I had too much. Uh, I questioned way too much of uh, Catholic doctrine, and uh, you know, I. I was the Weisenheimer that in class it was always trying to like, well, if God is right. so powerful, could He actually like pick up the the universe? Yeah, you
1: know, I mean, just yeah, yeah, like George Carlin's bit: "Is it possible yeah. that God can make a a, a lot a rock so large even He can't pick it up?"
0: Perfect. That's a, that's <laughs> yeah. it. that's probably the one that I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. George Carlin, man, what a there's a there's a good memory.
1: Oh man. What, what wow. a, uh, what a, what a comic I got to meet him once too. And it was, it was like a spiritual experience for me because he was the first voice that made me realize I could question authority and his, you know, his lived experience was so similar to mine, even though he was from New York, it was the Irish Catholic, uh, you know, and all the, all the stuff that, that, that went with that. And, uh, Do you remember any particular images or events that made you think, I got to go out to San Francisco?
0: Well, actually, it's kind of weird. What happened was uh, my father was killed in a uh, car crash,
1: drunk. Mm -hmm. He was drunk.
0: And, uh, yeah, he was drunk. And I think he was coming home from his mistress's house. We Mm -hmm. found out certain things after he died, which slayed my mother, but... um, I was uh, I, I was very angry with that higher power uh, at that point. So sixteen, and, and I just you know knew that I didn't want to serve in that capacity. I was just so angry, and that's when I I left the seminary and uh, had a a buddy. Uh, actually, this is so strange. Uh, the guy that I hitchhiked out to uh, San Francisco for the first time in 67, just died this past week. I'm, uh, I'm warning him right now. We were, uh, Oh man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just, you know, one of those cosmic what, coinkydinks we're talking about. him.
1: Was it uh COVID related or is this the guy that had the stroke?
0: No, this is the guy that had the stroke. Actually, Yeah. I, I told you about that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but, uh, when I say I didn't look back, I, I, I pretty much, uh, you know, I got out to San Francisco in 67, and I mean, everything was, uh, everything was happening. You know, that was... Uh,
1: Paint some pictures for me.
0: Well, uh, I never lived actually in the Haight. I lived uh, uh, near California in Fillmore, which was another uh, hippy-dippy area. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we ended up uh, getting an apartment. And we had to, we had to uh, fill out our zodiac. Uh, what is it? Your chart. It okay. was like, so
1: fucking ridiculous. There's, there's
0: seven of us trying to get this two room apartment and um, the landlord, and, w-
1: and what colored robe did the landlord have?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just this old freaky lady, and she made us like. You know, she she had to read our charts before she was, we were going to be compatible enough to stay in this her apartment building, uh, and uh, actually the young woman that I was with was the last one, and uh, she goes, "Well, wait a minute, she's a she's a Scorpio. This isn't going to work," <laughs> and, and and I said, "No, wait, wait, no, not November. Her birthday's not November. It's in April." She goes, "Oh, whatever it is, Aries. Oh, okay, fine." I mean,
1: I mean, it was just so crazy. Had you changed the date of uh, changed change, her sign to, to
0: change her sign so that there wouldn't. Yeah. Be a
1: so then, within
0: actually within weeks, we got a uh, apartment on the fourth floor. There was four apartments on each floor of this building, and it was a four story walk up. And there was a base a garden apartment. So I guess maybe twenty apartments in all. Uh, by the end of the first week, we had chiseled out a hole or a uh, archway in between our apartment and our next door neighbor's apartment. But (laughs) within a year, every apartment was, the walls were broken down. I mean, the whole building was just one big commune. I mean, you could stay anywhere you wanted to. And, uh, and everybody did. Uh, it was, uh, it was amazing. Um, Mike Carabella, who was uh, the conga player in Santana, Santana's band, he, he lived in the building. Uh, there was a band back then called It's a Beautiful Day. Um, David Laflame and his wife, uh, they, they lived across the street. Um, music was everywhere. I, uh, I was really, really uh, lucky to have, I got a job working at the Fillmore West. And uh so
1: Which for 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 those who aren't familiar with it would would be considered uh in in that day one of the top three venues for influential bands, influential events. That's where the, the band uh recorded the last waltz. Uh Bill Graham, the the granddaddy of promoters, really kind of the godfather of modern promoting, wouldn't you say?
0: Oh absolutely. He he uh he put he put rock and roll, um, you know, that kind of promoting uh, on the map, without a doubt. And
1: uh, <clears throat> and so he was responsible for promoting bands like the Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Santana, uh, yep. Jefferson Airplane,
0: Quicksilver Messenger Service, the Sons of Champlin, Sly and the Family Stone. Um, yeah. I mean, everybody was. Uh, I mean, San Francisco was. Probably the musical center for, you know, that that jo- that uh, era of uh, of rock rock and roll. I mean, everybody was gravitating towards San Francisco. And
1: uh, would it be would was- it be fair to say that the um, the kind of the singer songwriter acoustic thing that had peaked in the Laurel Canyon Southern California area? Was now morphing into a more of a kind of uh, a drug influenced acidity kind of San Francisco based thing, or is that a, a oversimplification?
0: Well, I would actually say singer songwriter that that the Laurel Canyon uh, period sort of was after. It was probably more early seventies mm-hmm. than uh, than the late sixties. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, San Francisco, um, you, you remember. Uh, uh, white Rabbit, airplane, mm-hmm. and Grace Slick singing "Feed Your Head." Mm-hmm. Is she is she suggesting to the uh, youth of America to try drugs? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> and they did, and uh, you know, it was uh, it's kind of it's kind of strange. I mean, you know, I've been sober now for thirty one years. In those days. Uh, I was tr- trying everything. I mean, uh, acid uh, acid was very prevalent in San Francisco at that point, point. and uh, peyote and psilocybin, and, you know, all the psychedelics. Um,
1: tell tell the story about your uh, bright idea about how to pay for traveling around <laughs> and following the Grateful Dead.
0: Oh yeah, well, it wasn't actually the dead, but uh, oh,
1: okay, I had two buddies.
0: I had two buddies that um, we we actually met Osley, uh, and Osley was
1: uh, Osley, the creator of LSD, or at least the the, the one that made he, it popular.
0: Yeah, he he actually was making homemade LSD in San Francisco, and he was he was he ended up being the Grateful Dead's manager. But uh, he uh, w- we knew him; he lived down the street from us, and uh, so we got some. I think we bought 5,000 hits of, uh, LSD on, and this was blotter acid. And so it was on these long rolls.
1: of paper. And it would just, they would take an, uh, an eyedropper of the liquid and they would drop it onto a, a sheet and that would be one hit.
0: Right. And then you rip off that little piece of the paper and drop it. and um, You know, you're off to, uh, you're off to, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Um, but, uh, we, we were uh, going to go to a big rock festival in uh, Iowa. I think it was called the Kickapoo Joy Jamboree, as I, as I recall. Um, and so the three of us, we, we buy these 5,000 hits, and we got a very good deal on it. And uh, what we didn't know at that point is that if you put LSD and wrapped it around you, which is what, how we thought we were going to get from San Francisco to Chicago and then Chicago to Iowa.
1: That's how you'd smuggle it on the plane.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: it, it goes directly into your body.
0: So I remember being, getting on the plane and thinking that I was a piece of, Oh, maybe tobacco in a cigar. I mean, I I, I had, (laughs) I was uh, very, very disoriented. Um, And then quite frankly, I, I don't remember what happened. I did not really come back to earth uh, for three days and I had been to the uh, festival, but I don't know what happened to the acid. And I ended up being about maybe 125 miles away from, from the festival. I have no idea how I got there. And uh, I did meet my, the two guys again on, for our flight back, because we were we had tickets to get back to San Francisco, so I did meet them back in Chicago, and uh, neither one of them knew what had happened either. So,
1: <laughs> how how did your brain not get destroyed? How did you not turn into you a know, Sid, Sid Barrett casualty?
0: I, I I don't know. Maybe that explains a lot <laughs> of stuff. Right? Yeah. Uh, it was uh. It was without a doubt. I mean, I, I never lost. Uh, three days um, on anything else I mean I really have no idea what happened for those three days but you know back then you you trusted people much much more than you do today Yeah. Um, I mean I, I hitchhiked across country three or four times and never never had a bad experience never thought ill of it you know it was just it was just those times if you had long hair and <clears throat> a Volkswagen uh, bus would be going by with some more freaks in it. Boom. They just pick you up and off you go. It was, it was, it was really kind of a magical time back then. Um, I'm very, very pleased to have lived through it. And I'm very, very pleased to have lived through it. <laughs> yeah.
1: To have not only survived, but to be, uh, have your wits about you and to, to not be crushed by depression or, um, or do you do you suffer from depression?
0: I I don't know. I, I mean, I've had my bouts of being depressed, but I don't think I suffer from depression. I uh, I came into uh, I came into the program via a psychologist, I guess, um, a woman that I went in for what? What is it? Uh, generalized anxiety disorder. I think mm-hmm. that was and <laughs> that's the. Uh, but I, I, actually went in because I was. Uh, this is many years later, but I was uh, cheating on my wife, like um, a lot, to the point where I didn't even get it, you know. And uh, uh, my, my. What do you mean when you
1: say to the point where you didn't even get it, where you couldn't even see how bad it was, or what?
0: Well, I knew it was bad, but I mean, I couldn't stop, and I. I see. I couldn't understand what, the what my motivation was. Now at that time I was also drinking a lot and my, uh, drug of choice at that point was cocaine. So I was like doing a lot of cocaine and drinking a lot of alcohol.
1: And, yeah. uh, it's, it's hard to tighten up the moral ship when you're uh, high on Coke and booze. I, I guess,
0: but it was strange because when I went to see this woman, she, uh, she uh, said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, have you uh, have you had a drink this morning? This is a, like the first time I'm meeting her standing in the lobby. And she, I guess, smells it and says, have you had a drink? And I go, well, I, I had three three fingers this morning. I mean, not, nothing nothing serious. And she goes, anything else? And you had to have that moment where, okay, am I going to be straight make this – Yeah, yes, I I snorted a couple lines of cocaine. And she goes, okay, so in order to see me, you're going to have to agree to go see certain...
1: uh, Go to some support groups. read
0: certain books, uh, go to certain meetings that I suggest. Is that something that you would be willing to do? And I went, yeah, I suppose I could do that. And she goes, okay, great. I want you to go to a meeting tonight. And every night this week, and then come back next week.
1: Hold on one second, Charlie. I just, I just let's let's generalize that and just call it a, a support group, just to oh. for the for the twelfth tradition.
0: Well, thank you kindly.
1: Mm-hmm. A meeting. Yeah, so yeah. Just back up and say that again. I want you to go. So
0: uh, I want you to go to a uh, a twelve step group and, uh, and uh, also go every single night this week and then come back and, and uh, see me. Well, the problem at that point for me was uh, once I stopped and tried to stop drinking, even for 24 hours, I started, you know, I started to lose it. Um, I did go to a meeting that night and I met, uh, the guy that would be my sponsor, future sponsor. And, uh, the guy that brought me was a, a musician and, uh, he, uh, he too was sponsored by this guy. So I, uh, I was just starting to like, really, really lose it on day two. Um,
1: shaking. like, like, Oh, okay. I was just going to ask you how like yeah, physically she, shaking.
0: Yeah. Physically shaken. And, uh, I mean like there was no way I would drive and even attempt to drive. Anyways, these two guys, one guy I didn't know. And the other guy, I, I mean, I knew him, but I, it's not like we were really close, but they just took me out to uh Joshua tree and, and they sat on me for a week and, uh, and I kicked, you know, um, it was, <clears throat> you know, I guess maybe there in those days there were, uh, rehab places but nobody really talked about them i mean you uh
1: and so did you have the the delirium you know the hallucinations and the bugs crawling and all of that, that stuff
0: oh yeah i mean like uh i was absolutely uh freaked out by outlets in the wall because the things that were going of it, things that would crawl out of them and uh so we, you know, they said, well, we'll just put this chair up against there And you know? I go, yeah, yeah, keep that chair there. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but, you know, that guy, that guy's still my sponsor. I mean, he, it's 31 years. Fred. Yeah, Fred. Uh, just amazing. I mean, you know, uh, this... Uh, the, the 12 step programs I mean without a doubt I mean it just completely turned my life around so um and I I haven't drank or used since then either and uh yeah it's um, it's it's so strange to go from like I'm talking about like being in San Francisco in mm-hmm. 67 and 68 and then uh to arc you know 31 years right
1: a lot of a lot of activity in between in between that. I mean, you described for me one time what your office vibe was in the seventies uh, in the in the music business. Uh, just Describe for me what the environment so, was like. So uh,
0: I was I was, I've been really really blessed to have had a career during all of this uh the uh the fillmore west uh parlayed into you you mentioned the tower records uh which was the second store in san francisco and i did that for a few years and then ended up coming back to chicago and uh, uh a guy that i knew was opening up a record store and uh so I helped him with that and became the manager. And then we grew it to uh, four stores. And then I got picked up by uh, a distribution company called Warner Electra Atlantic and, uh, worked for them for a few years. They distributed those three labels, Warner Electra and Atlantic, which were three of the biggest, oh, yeah, uh, and most, uh, Oh, successful labels in the early seventies. And, uh, and then I just started working for the W for the for Warner's, and uh, Warner's was uh, an extremely. Uh,
1: was that Mo Austin?
0: That was Mo Austin. Okay. And Atlantic
1: was Ahmed Erdogan, right? Yes, he was. Yes, it was. Okay. And, uh, uh, oh man,
0: I, I should know a lecture off the top of my head, when I'm spacing on it. Um,
1: Clive Davis, no.
0: No. We'll have to, uh,
1: we'll, we'll, revisit. maybe, maybe that's where the acid damage was. That's the only problem. You just can't remember who ran Electra in the seventies. If that's as bad as it gets, Hey, you got off pretty well.
0: Um, but, uh, it wasn't just Warns. I mean, record companies, uh, record companies were pretty loose and, uh, at the same time, because music was such a driving force at that point, I mean, when uh, when you think about the early '70s, I mean, like there wasn't a lot going on. You know, <laughs> this, was, this is long before cell phones or long before even video games or, or
1: cable TV.
0: Or yeah, I mean, you know, so you know, like kids would have. Uh, I mean, you go to the movies, and uh, you needed you know, twenty five cents a gallon or thirty cents a gallon for your car to fill up. And and then you needed music. So either uh eight tracks for your car or uh LPs for your house. And
1: speaking of LPs, Charlie is in his basement right now. And just to paint a picture for the listener, behind him is a wall of LPs that is about eight feet tall and about I don't know, maybe fifty fifty feet wide. Safe, <laughs> safely, I would say what, three thousand albums?
0: Uh, no there's probably about uh, there's probably about 10,000 back there.
1: oh my god yeah and it's uh it's nice because uh not only is it an awesome collection but makes for good acoustics when you're recording a podcast oh there you go uh so you were saying about uh people had expendable income there weren't a lot of other diversions and uh the the music business was at the height of its earning it's earning power
0: it it was just uh it was an amazing business to be in and i was lucky to have gotten in uh you know fairly early on the ground floor and just worked my way up and uh so i had a uh i had a great career um as a matter of fact i even still do consulting for uh, for the label and uh as you say uh There's been this nice resurgence of vinyl in the last 10 years, and uh, I've been working on those efforts. uh, I'm definitely old school in that uh, it's not that I don't appreciate Spotify and the fact that you can, like, pretty much listen to anything or hear anything, but if you really want to sit down and listen to a a record – I strongly uh, suggest a nice stereo system and vinyl, and uh, sit down and, and uh, really listen to. Uh,
1: and you get the whole experience of what the artist had in mind when they said it's going to be these songs in this order.
0: Yes, yes. The uh, it's kind of it's kind of strange because one of the things that happened with CDs and CDs were I mean it was a it was a great delivery system for music uh, and. It really wasn't a huge difference in, in the uh, audio dynamics, but it was digital. And so, um, I don't know, I've experienced listening fatigue when I just listen to CDs. After all, it is a bunch of zeros and ones going on and off um, very, very quickly. But, um, you know, if you listen to it a lot, I develop something. I mean, it's, it's, it's harder to listen to, to music that way for a long period of time, wherein if you just keep flipping records over and uh, I've been able to go days and weeks doing that. (laughs) Um, But uh,
1: so there was this tremendous amount of, of money and the, the office environment uh, was obviously a reflection of that. And the, the kind of the, the social mores at the, at the time that drug use was definitely not frowned upon. If you could do your job, correct? I mean, describe your desk.
0: Yeah. I, in a uh, typical meeting. I, 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 it's, it's pretty amazing when I, when I think back, cause you know, in the, uh, in the eighties, uh, I was, uh, running sales the sales department and, uh, I, on a, on a daily basis, there was a guy that would come around the offices, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the executives had little bars uh, in their office. You know, most people it was probably for after hours. Um, they had a little ice bucket, and uh, sometimes this guy would have, he'd have different kinds of cigarettes. Every day, I would get a fifth of vodka in a in uh, a ice bucket full of ice, and a package of Marlboros or camels or and I would just sit there and I just drank all day I mean I just made drinks from nine o'clock in the morning till I left at six or seven at night and uh and then I also would imbibe in uh in other uh party favors and (laughs) okay (laughs) but but I was I was uh I, I was effective Maybe, you know, in retrospect, maybe these 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 uh, black discs would just sell themselves. And I was just sort of right. keeping the keeping the the uh, hoop on the on the road, tapping it here and there and keeping it going down. But um, I don't think so. I think I actually was uh, I think I contributed fairly strongly and I, w- I was a good executive. But I did do it under the influence and I did it for many, many
1: years. And I mean, you described what was it your ashtray you would have? overturned or what 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 was it that
0: I had a uh, I had an ashtray that had like a uh, convex uh, bottom to it Mm -hmm. and so uh, if you lifted it up it was a heavy ashtray but if you lifted it up I just keep a little pile of uh, white marching powder there and go into it as needed
1: and people would pop into the office and, and this was common uh, in other offices that people you would just walk in and then somebody would say, Hey, you want to do a line of blow? And it was like eating mints.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So as you look back now, you know, there there was such a naivete, especially about cocaine, that it was thought to be, you know, something that was almost like an an ornament that it was, wasn't harmful, it showed status, it was fun. Uh, when did the cracks begin to show? Not, not necessarily in your drug use, but in those around you. To talk about some of the casualties that you began to see. You know, not, Maybe not even necessarily limited to, to cocaine, but when you began to see some of the shine wear off on the whole drug culture euphoria thing.
0: Well, I, it, it happened in stages, and it happened at, at different points. I mean, even when you go back to uh, San Francisco in the late 60s, uh, the hate ashbury definitely uh, changed dramatically with the introduction of harder drugs, speed and heroin, without a doubt. Um, up until... I'd say 67 or 68, it was pretty much pot in the psychedelics. But as uh, speed and, uh, and heroin started to take their toll, it, it crashed and burned. That, that, uh, it was a wonderful uh, period up until the hard drugs, without a doubt. And then that, that period really crashed and burned hard on, on, uh, on harder drugs. But then, in you know, in the '70s and '80s, I think um, I think there were different, as 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 cocaine became more and more into the mainstream, uh, you know, like this pandemic that we're experiencing right now. There's there's different areas of the country that, uh, or different levels of society, that would get into it and. Write it as long as they could, but, uh, cocaine in, invariably takes its toll. I mean, there's not a lot of people that can put a lot of years behind cocaine. It's just, uh, it's a, uh, it's a debilitating drug. It, uh, you think for a long time that you are being effective and, uh, and that it is not a problem. I mean, I, I experienced a number of years where I I didn't think it was a problem. But at a certain point, um, uh, at least for me, I found myself having to do it and it not having any other effect other than the fact that I had to do it.
1: Um, Because you just couldn't conceive of getting on with your day without that bump?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd start my day with it. And um, unfortunately, a lot of times I, I... I, I wouldn't even end the day. I mean, I'd just be up all night and, and go back into work. Um, it was uh, for me. I think it was uh, it was a combination of the booze and the, and the coke, and you know, then my behavior on in in other areas it just it just got me to a point where um, none of it was working. You know. And, uh, and i was just profoundly empty I, I think that was the that was the uh <clears throat> that's how it manifested itself i just felt like uh, a shell of the, the person that i had once been and i just didn't have anything uh, inside to keep me going
1: did you have any kind of thoughts of suicide or you know what 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 was the monologue going on in your brain as you would break out another line or drink another three fingers of vodka and intellectually know this is not the answer, but you couldn't stop.
0: I just, I think it, I just had this ongoing, uh, daily. Uh, I would promise myself that today I'm not going to do this right. Mm-hmm. And I stopped waking up. I, I don't know when I stopped waking up and then started just coming to. Um, and and then I think there was a period of time where I finally just stopped going to sleep and I would pass out. So, I mean, I I would have to drown the blow, keep doing that until it was gone, but then I have to drown that with alcohol just to like, get, get to sleep. And then, uh, I can remember waking even before I'd be, even before I'd open my eyes, I would be conscious and I would just know that yet again, I don't know what time it is. I'm coming to, and I, I just did it again. you know, mm-hmm. And that, that, um, I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed and nobody was around. I had that kind of a feeling.
1: <laughs> That's such a great... I was embarrassed when no one was around. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, and it's just like,
0: you know, oh, my God, it's me and I've got to, you know, i, I got to deal with me again. And it's just... It was just uh, heartbreaking to the point where I was like, okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to finally do something about it. And so I went to see this woman and she didn't want to see me until I started going to tell
1: tell this story about passing out on the, was it on the roof?
0: Uh, early, early on one of the, uh, right around the time that I, uh, that I decided to, uh, uh, you know, start addressing it, uh, addressing my problem. I, uh, I was at a uh <laughs> at a uh, Labor Day party and uh I must have I think I probably had been up all night but whatever whatever I was doing I ran out of probably around 10 or 11 on Labor Day and I in the morning or at night in the morning <laughs> I mean I was just done you know and I was at this picnic and uh uh, a bunch of friends and cousins, and they, they were all playing, uh, they were playing frisbee and f- baseball and or, or, uh, softball. And I ended up on this uh, park bench with my head off the park bench, my, my mouth wide open, but I actually managed to sunburn the roof of my mouth. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, you that's, come to at three o'clock in the afternoon and you just feel like there's this hole that's just been burnt in here. And, uh, yeah, it was that actually that, that, that was one of those, there was a number of things that were starting to happen then, but that was one that I remember that was going, Oh my God, I just gotta, get a, yeah. I gotta get a handle. And it's just, it's, it's I'm killing myself.
1: Tell uh-huh. the, tell the story about, and, and I hope this doesn't come across as me Glorifying uh, drug culture. But I think there's a part of us as recovering addicts, alcoholics, that will always have a tiny bit of a soft spot for the, uh, I don't know, the the traditions of scoring and using the romancing of all of the ephemera around getting high, not necessarily the loneliness and the, and the, you know, being fucked up, but that time that you went to buy hash from, from the person.
0: Oh, Oh, uh, well, that was actually in San Francisco. Yeah. This was, uh, <laughs> that's it. That's, uh, this is probably late 68 or 69. I, uh, I met a guy, a merchant marine, and this guy uh, this guy was going all over the world, but he, when he would come back into port in San Francisco, uh, he'd come by our our, our apartment, and uh, he'd have various things to sell and us to us buy. But uh, he asked, he goes, uh, so uh, anybody interested in some hash? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you kidding? Yeah, we'd love some hash. And he uh, he says, "Well, all I have is this," and he has this briefcase. Okay, it's like a it's like a small attaché briefcase, brass hinges and brass uh, uh, you know uh, clicker and uh, you know one of didn't have the it didn't have the, uh, it didn't have the uh, combination uh, mm-hmm. portion on it, but a little thing that you click to open it up. And uh, so he pushes it on this table and pushes it over to me and this other guy. And So we like open up the, the case and we're like, it's empty. And he said, the only way we can do this is uh, how many stories is this, is this uh, building? And he said, four stories. And he goes, And Perfect. Because we have to drop this off a four story building into a big oil drum and we got to hit the oil drum gotta drop it right into there. And that's the only way it's gonna break up. And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, uh, "It's it's the case." I'm like, "What? <laughs> this is compressed hash. This is how we get it in the briefcase itself was, was the hash. And we didn't we didn't buy the whole briefcase. We only bought a couple of chunks. <laughs> but and it was great hash. I mean, oh. it, those kinds of stories. I mean, you know." Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to glorify it either. But it's a funny story. Well, and and you guys got to you got to remember that back back then, at least, at, back then it was, this stuff was working. It was right.
1: of, still a part of the fun. It wasn't a part of the problem yet. Yeah, uh, I like how George Carlin described drugs. He said, for a lot of people, and he was including himself. He said, drugs can open a window to your mind, but that window eventually closes and it turns on you and you have to understand when that window is closed and yeah. that it's no longer working for you. Some people it can work for their entire lives and they can, they can have fun. They know how to moderate it. But yeah, for some of us, th- that window uh, eventually closes and it begins to take from, from us.
0: Well, and I think to the, um, you know, the, the drugs that you end up gravitating towards, I mean, I don't think you can could, you do LSD or peyote uh, addictively. Do you know what I mean? I, you would, it would, first of all, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't even that kind of a high. It was, it, it really was much more cerebral, but you don't ever hear of anybody being like strung out on LSD or, or strung out on, on magic mushrooms. Um, it's, it's the drugs that you know really have that uh, insidious uh, clause that just you know I'm helping you yeah
1: the drugs that say I am your helper right while it steals while it steals from you when your back is your back well, is turned
0: while well, it steals everything actually yeah.
1: talk about some of the moments you had a front row seat for in the in the music business um I mean you worked at the Fillmore when you probably got to see the Allman Brothers there
0: oh I saw pretty much every everybody anybody that you can come up with I think I've probably seen live
1: were you there when Otis Redding uh performed
0: I did see Otis Redding. Uh, was he
1: as, as amazing I, as I imagined he would be? I don't
0: think I saw... I didn't see Otis at the uh, at the Fillmore, and that probably was 67, but I don't know if, if I just wasn't there that night or if it was uh, uh, before I started working there. Um, but I, I did see Otis. Um, uh, I got to see Aretha Franklin. I,
1: uh, How amazing was she? Oh, amazing. I think maybe the greatest vocalist ever.
0: Oh, my God. She is just... An amazing, amazing talent. Um, but I think my all-time favorite female um, vocalist is K.D. Lang. She's I incredible. I just uh, that voice, those pipes, the her capacity. I mean, you know, anytime you hear her finish a note, there's more in the tank. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Uh, and uh, um, and I and, and I got to work with her uh, on probably three or four of her records. Um, the uh, um, Fleetwood Mac uh, that was that was a I mean that was one of the biggest records of all time, the Rumours record. I got to work on that record. Um, <clears throat> flew on Fleetwood Mac's jet, you know and. Uh, Went to different concerts around the country. Um,
1: could you the, could, uh, could you see that there was an implosion happening uh, there with them? Uh, yeah, that was.
0: I mean, there was definitely uh, <clears throat> there were drugs going on. In- it was
1: a snow village, from mm-hmm. uh, you know the yeah. the things I've read and autobiographies and stuff like that. It was it was uh, in many ways. It sounds like it was the stereotypical, you know. Sell a million albums, everybody gets a Coke habit and goes their separate ways.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, you could go your own way. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was lucky to be, uh, I actually got to ride the bus with Bob Marley and the Whalers and do no. some uh, college uh, markets. And, um, you know.
1: What was he like?
0: Uh, he was a, a, a prince. A, uh, he was just one of the most down-to-earth people um, I've ever met, and uh, but very high. Oh, my God, that guy. I mean, these guys smoked spleafs. You, you know from yeah. this?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like they cigars.
0: Wrote, cigars. Yeah. newspapers.
1: <laughs> like, he's huge.
0: And uh, the idea would be to hyperventilate it. <laughs> You just get this massive uh, amount of smoke. Um, I mean, I, I I could do that like three times, and I'd be ready to pass out. It would just be uh, incredible. And I don't even know where these guys got their pot, but it was back then. It's it was probably like the stuff they have these days that you I've only heard about, but very very strong.
1: Um, uh, and was he was he sick yet when you were no, no traveling with
0: was, him? No, this is before he was sick. Uh, this was early early on. I mean, like the first uh, two or three records, he wasn't nearly the big, big phenomenon that he ended up uh, turning into. Um, he was getting bigger and bigger with, with each record. Um,
1: uh, Little Feet. Oh, I love Little Feet. Lowell yeah. George, the, the, maybe the greatest slide guitar player ever and such an amazing voice. Yeah. Um, and he was a heroin overdose? No, he was a cocaine guy. Cocaine guy. Go ahead, yeah. I, I cut you off. You were going to say.
0: Uh, Bonnie Raitt was uh, blessed to have worked with Bonnie Raitt and talking heads.
1: Um, what, what are your memories of working with, with uh, Little Feet? Was Lowell uh, a nice guy?
0: Oh, yeah. All those guys were great guys. Actually, uh, a couple of them I've kept up with. Um, Billy Payne, uh, second guitar player, just died this past year. Um, excuse me. Uh, Paul Barrera just died this past year, but I've seen Billy since then. Um, the, uh, Little Feet was probably the best band, m- musically, m- uh, musicianship-wise, right. I think I, I ever saw. It. Just, just an amazing.
1: Uh, I, I was shocked when I heard that he wasn't from New Orleans. Because yeah. when you hear Little Feet, you think... Oh these people will, were all born in the French Quarter with instruments in their hand.
0: Right, right. And he was and a California he, boy. Yeah, no, and they and they uh they just loved that New Orleans backbeat. I mean, Richie Hayward, uh, their drummer was just one of one of the best drummers ever. I mean, just an amazing, amazing guy and he could like uh channel uh, uh all of those early uh Alan Toussaint, you know, Penn Hits working in the coal mine and uh, mm-hmm. uh, mother in law. I mean those just that those that backbeat that would just permeate all of Feet's stuff is just amazing.
1: I was driving home last night and Fat Man in the bathtub came on and I was like, Oh, I've gotta turn this wow. up as loud as possible.
0: Where were you where were you uh, what was it on? It was radio?
1: just on my shuffle. Oh, on your shelf. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely.
1: But every every time I, Little Feet comes on, I've I just, I don't know, there's something about their vibe that is just so, you can't be in a bad mood when you're listening to Little Feet. You mm-hmm. just can't. They're, uh, I don't know, kind of like in some ways kind of like reggae. They're, they're just a, something just tells you put down the phone, put down the whatever, and uh, get up on your feet and do something.
0: You uh, you know that first uh, Robert Palmer record, Mm-hmm. because that's that's Little Feet backing him up. That's a that's oh a great, really yeah, Sneaking Sally through the alley.
1: That's a great. I'll have to me. give that one a listen. What what are some? Um, unless you had some more uh, memories of, of kind of front seat moments.
0: Uh, well, um, I didn't. I never got to see the Beatles per se. I you know, saw them as a. Uh, as a group, but I did get to, uh, I got to work with George and, uh, his, his records, um, his label dark horse ended up getting uh, distributed by us.
1: And, uh, uh, had, was that starting with all things must pass or after that?
0: No, uh, it was down the road. I think actually he had, I think this first distribution deal was with a and M and I think maybe had three records. We had, uh, uh, thirty-three and a third was our first one, and that's actually when I met him.
1: Uh, and was he a nice guy? Yeah, just, just a a
0: blessed guy,
1: you know. What's it, what's it like meeting a fucking beetle? You know, it was it was. Uh, I thought
0: I was going to be, like, well, oh my god, I'm not going to be able to talk, but he was so disarming in his his his. Uh, Humility, you know, he, he, he just like, he, he was asking more questions about from me and I was like, wait a second. (laughs) We got, we got this interview going the wrong way here, but, but he was genuinely interested in, in people and, um, just, uh, an an amazing individual. And, um, I got to, uh, I, I, got to, Take him around to took him to, uh, you know, some radio stations and uh, television stations. And uh, he uh, he actually requested me a couple times uh, when he was on the West Coast. So that was that was nice. Um, and uh, just uh, one of those guys where, you know, when he passed, there, there's just like, a, you know, a. a a rentering in the force or you know you, you, you actually something was something just was missing yeah and uh, he uh and musically geez i mean you know some some of the great great beatles songs i mean you know lennon and mccartney get
1: you know they're just due but just oh my god her- tax man one of the best songs ever oh yeah no just just amazing repertoire and you
0: know, and he never, he didn't, wouldn't get like you'd only get like one song on an right. on an album. Remember that? Yeah. So that when they finally do break up and he's he's the first one to go solo,
1: he puts out a three LP set. Right? Yeah. Just had a backlog. Can you imagine submitting songs to Lennon and McCartney?
0: Yeah. And, oh my God. And having it not make the cut. I mean, geez, yeah. That amazing.
1: So, <clears throat> have there been bands that you thought? I'm sure there have been that where you thought this can't miss, and just it never caught on, and oh. you're still scratching your head. Yeah, and
0: you know, there's there's probably more of those than than you would think. Um, when you uh, when you think about the music business, it's it's pretty interesting that we are completely aware of what we're aware of. Right. But probably there's probably 20, 25 records that don't make it for everyone that, that does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those ones that make it then, you know, are able to underwrite all these up and coming uh, artists and, um, it was, it was kind of strange at Warner's because we had so many hits. We were constantly having so many hits that it would be harder to break somebody new. I mean, you know, uh, when you're going into a, a – if you're a promotion guy and you're going into a radio station, right, and you've got a bag full of records, well, if every week you've got three or four records of known artists that – you know, need to go right on the radio. That makes it really hard for these 20 other artists that are trying to break in. Yeah. So, uh, what Warners did was they sort of split the label up. It was a, it was a very, very smart move by a guy named uh, Russ Thyret. He uh, he he activated, or reactivated Reprise Records, which had been uh, started by Frank Sinatra. It was Jimi hendrix's label and um, neil young's label uh but he he sort of split it so that it was warner and reprise and then he hired a separate staff for reprise so now you have two guys going into radio stations mm-hmm. each one of them with three records and we netted additional airplay so it was a it was a really good move
1: And course who were some of the bands that you helped break that you uh look back fondly
0: Oh. I think I mentioned Talking Heads that was uh, that was Oh, amazing. they're
1: so amazing. Yeah, they're was, so amazing.
0: Yeah, that was really uh, I uh I was involved with uh, the Violent Femmes, I don't know if you uh-huh. know. Them. Oh yeah. But They were a Milwaukee band and uh uh I was taking uh, Chrissy Hind of the uh, Pretenders to a radio interview in Milwaukee and uh we were late and just taking her through downtown Milwaukee going, come on, we got to go. We got to go. <laughs> We're gonna be late. And, uh, these three guys are busking right on the, on the street. And Chrissy would like, she was just enthralled. She was like, well, we gotta, we gotta see these guys. I go, I'll tell you what I'll keep, I'll keep them here. Let's get you to the interview. And then we'll, we'll see you on the way back. And, uh, she, uh, did the interview. I told these guys to keep, to wait around. And, uh, when she came back, she asked them to open up for her that night in Milwaukee.
1: And that was the violent fans. It was the violent fans. It was just, uh, you
0: know, one of those, you know, nice little moments. And, uh, and they, of course, then started recording, uh, they were on a label called slash, which was distributed by Warner. So, um, and I was lucky I, I got one of the four or five gold records on the first. Uh, the
1: first Blister record. in the Sun, such a great yeah, song.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's it. This will go down on your permanent record. It's one of the best lines ever <laughs> from a band. And Chrissy Hyde, oh, I could talk all day about Chrissy Hyde. She, to me, is punk rock music.
0: <clears throat> yeah, it's, that, it's first,
1: that first. First Pretenders album. It, it, there's not a bad song on it.
0: Oh. And of course, we lost two of those guys uh, to drugs. You know, that mm-hmm. was uh, that was a uh, that was really really hard. I know it was really hard on her, and uh, um, but Jesus, that was just hard on music. I mean, that that band had so much promise, um, and uh, yeah, James Honeyman Scott, just you know, to this day, I. You know, I feel uh, I get shivers thinking about that guy. Yeah. Amazing, amazing band. Um, you know, I, I. If you look at uh, Warner's and Sire and Reprise Records, I mean, it's it's just it's there's just an embarrassment of riches. Um, I was really really lucky to work on. You know, even Sinatra. I mean, I got to work Sinatra records and. Madonna records and, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and, uh, Maldar, uh, um, Van Morrison, early Van Morrison. Uh, you know, I have, when you, uh, when you think about all of the, the records, uh, in this house, my all time favorite record is Astro Weeks by Van Morrison. So that's the one that, uh, I go back to on a regular basis.
1: What is it about that
0: one? Um, you know, I don't know. It came out, uh, I was 17 years old when that record came out. It spoke to me then in a, just a, uh, profoundly spiritual way, I guess. And, uh, and, and it still does. I mean, it's, it's like a, uh, it's like an old friend that, uh, You know, I just sometimes have to go back and visit.
1: Maybe Uh, it saved you from the seminary. (laughs) Maybe it saved the seminary from you. There you go.
0: There you go,
1: (laughs) buddy. It's so great talking to you, man. I could uh, I could pick your brain for hours about uh, music anecdotes, and uh, but more than anything, I I am so glad to to have you is one of the, one of the posse, one of the guys that I know I can count on when I get sideways, when my head's fucking with me. Um, and I miss hugging you.
0: I miss, I miss you too, man. And I miss playing cards. And, oh, we got to get you know, back to that. I know the fog going to lift. And, uh, you know, this is definitely not our karma. We've got, we got lots more, uh, lots more in, in front of us. You just got to get rid of this, uh, you know. This whatever this thing is.
1: Yeah. But I love you, and thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to share your crazy with us.
0: I'll see you in the uh, Zoom meeting. All Coming right, buddy. All right, see you, bud.
1: One of the things that I forgot to uh, ask Charlie about are the particular projects that he's working, and uh, I mentioned that he's he goes back through the archives of the Warner Library and he'll either remaster and re-release an episode or uh, an album as it is or he will put together compilation albums like I think one of the ones he's working on now is uh, people covering songs by Bob Dylan and it might even be a female only album well could I be more vague about that (laughs) what are you I would be terrible at the information booth in the mall. <laughs> you know, where can I find shoes? You know, they told me when I first started working here, and I wasn't really paying attention because I was thinking about uh, my civilization game and how I really need to get to the next level. But I'm sure if you ask around, you can probably find somebody that knows. Like <laughs> at jackass. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air, and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with
1: upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car
0: buying should be.
1: Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by somebody who calls himself All my names sound pretentious. Uh, They write, I love the feeling grimy and greasy Then climbing into a slightly too hot bubble bath. That is a great one. And you think you can't take it. You think like, oh, am I actually burning my skin? And then like three seconds later, you're like, oh, yeah, no, I just scorched myself. The smell of air just before it rains. That's a great one. A cold, dark Friday evening, the curtains drawn, a plate full of hot food on my lap, putting on another episode of the TV show I'm engrossed in, nowhere else I have to be. Oh, that is a good one. And finishing a rigorous workout and thinking about the toberlone I'm going to eat the fuck out of. <laughs> that should be their slogan. Toberlone, eat the fuck out of me. Am I pronouncing toberlone? I don't care. Is it toberlone? Toberlone? I think it's German. I don't know. Ask the information booth at the mall. This is from the racism survey filled out by a woman in her 20s uh, who is Caucasian. Caucasian? White? What's the, what? Well, she's probably not from the Caucasus Mountains. She's white. Uh, She's in her 20s. I think I said that. Sure. Uh, share any experiences you have had with uh, racism, when it happened, and how old you were. Where to even start? Question mark. By growing up in the middle of Iowa in a small private Christian school, my parents ensured that I had no chances to experience diversity. I can count on one hand the number of black kids that were at our school. Let's start off with a couple blackface stories, because why not? Question mark. When I was around third grade, there was an assignment where we had a character to play and then had to give a little presentation dressed up as that character. My character was Harriet Tubman. For my costume, my mom dressed me up and also decided it would be a good idea to put some sort of brown paint on my face for more dot, 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 authenticity? Question mark. So this would have been like 15 years ago. I did the presentation and had no idea there was anything wrong with it. No one told me. To this day, my mom has no idea there was anything wrong with it. Then in college, I had another unfortunate blackface experience. It wasn't me this time, but I was involved. I was in a competition between dorms where we performed skits and our group had a character in blackface. What the fuck? During our performance, people booed us. I had no idea why. Later, it was officially addressed by the school and one of the few African-American students on campus sat us down and graciously explained what we had just done and how blackface encourages negative racial stereotypes. I was mortified. Ironically, this college happens to be North Central University, the same Christian university that just recently hosted the memorial for George Floyd. On a more personal level, I know I have had many biases and contributed to the oppression as well as benefited from a system that favors people who look like me. Growing up, I learned about racism and was so scared of being racist that I wished I could have a black friend and sought it out to be counted, quote, safe from being racist. Yikes. When I was older, I did an internship at the Dream Center in Los Angeles, While intentions were good, looking back, I can see white superiority everywhere in our actions and outlooks. We would travel to project sites like Nickerson Gardens, Jordan Downs, Ramona Gardens, etc. We would bring food trucks and pass out provisions. We would also hold a Christian program for the kids. All I can think now is what it must have looked like to be an African-American kid growing up in these rough living conditions, waiting to see their mostly white quote, saviors, unquote, come once a week offering provisions and telling them what they should believe and that we care about them. What does that tell them? To rely on us? That people who look like them are poor and people who don't are successful and better than them? Yes, we helped them and tried to treat them like they were no different, and many of the kids and community members loved us, but looking back, there are a lot of things about it that make me very uncomfortable. The least we could do was make sure we had some African-American people with us for representation. I'm no longer Christian, so the preaching stuff makes me cringe, too, but that's a whole different topic for another survey. Ack, I can barely even anonymously recount these things. I'm so embarrassed, and I know there are many other things I haven't shared. Thank you for the opportunity to anonymously contribute. It feels good to openly acknowledge these things as I continue to work on my own bias and prejudices during this critical time. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Doing blackface when I was young, I had no idea there was anything out of the ordinary, so I didn't feel anything about it. I don't feel guilt about it because I didn't know. In college, with the blackface incident, people people I felt shunned and didn't know what we had done wrong. I think there's a word missing in there. After I learned, I was so ashamed and embarrassed. During my time at the Dream Center, to be honest, I felt a sense of empowerment and self-righteousness from our good deeds. I wouldn't have admitted it, but looking back, I know I did have the feeling in subconscious viewpoint that I was a superior person going to help inferior people. Yuck. How do you feel about it now? Now I just feel gross. A lot of things I know I did out of white guilt, but it still came off as me being better than. I feel more perspective now, and I'm thankful that at least now I'm comfortable admitting my own part in racism and taking the responsibility to create real change within myself by recognizing these things. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? There is just so much pain in our country right now. And I hope, while the intention is on the this issue, that real, lasting, helpful change can take place. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself All I Can Do Is Smile. And he writes... Since this whole quarantine thing has been going on with social distancing and all, I ended up getting pretty sick in June after a bout with basically every COVID symptom and feeling like I was going to die. Having negative test results, I felt confused. Well, fast forward six weeks later and I take an STI screen. It wasn't COVID that caused these symptoms. It was HIV. All I can do is smile. I don't have words. I don't have words. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a, and and this one can get a little uh, graphic, Uh, filled out by a woman in her 20s uh, who identifies as bisexual and uh, goes by the name Social Anxiety Makes Me a Bitch and she says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My parents were divorced my entire life and despite my dad being an unemployed convicted felon, he still managed visitation rights to see me every other weekend. He lived with his wife who had a full-time job and he had plenty of alone time with me. The thing that hurts the most is that I can't remember when it started but I can't remember him actually touching me, but I know it happened because of the things I do remember in my hypersexuality at a very young age. I remember I was only three years old when I woke up in the middle of the night, walked into our living room, and began humping one of my dolls. I also tried to initiate what I thought was sex with several different cousins when I was between four and eight, and I still feel guilty. I have a vague memory of one of my older cousins trying to get me to lift up my shirt when she was staying over at my house. She would take me behind my bed and lay on top of me and kiss me. She was only three years older than me and I hold no grudges against her because like myself I wonder what happened to her to make her want to do this. I remember my dad bought me clothes one time I was with him and when we were alone he sat down in a chair and told me to try on the clothes in front of him saying why are you being shy you can change it's okay I'm your daddy. I remember undressing, but I don't think I tried on the clothes. I don't remember what happened. There was another time when he urged me to lay over his lap on the couch, saying the same thing as the other time, come lay down with your daddy, and he would rub my back and my butt. Again, I don't remember much else. I was terrified of him and never spoke to him unless I was asked a direct question. I feel ashamed and disgusted and really pissed off. I know what happened with my cousins, was none of our faults, but I wish I could have been brave enough to se- tell someone. And to this, you know, you, you, it's difficult to display bravery when you haven't had bravery displayed for you. What you had displayed for you was manipulation, power, shame, and secrets. And so, what child given all of those hurdles, would come forward and say something in an environment that already is confusing and feels unsafe. To this day, after not seeing him for over a decade, I still haven't told anyone up till now. I unwillingly think of him in those moments every day of my life. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Like most kids, I was bullied a lot in school over my weight and shyness. I remember it starting as early as preschool. There were a group of girls who made fun of my weight and told me I couldn't play with them because of it. Growing up, there were constant loud and long-lasting arguments between several different adults in my family, including arguments between my mom and dad almost every week. It usually happened over the phone, but on the rare occasion they argued when he came to pick me up, in which I had to listen to him complain about her on our car ride. Ugh. I would also have to listen to my parents having loud sex when I was a kid, and I would cover my ears and begin screaming, then feel repulsed when one of them came to comfort me. I did not want them near me, and then my mom and stepdad argued on occasion, but now that I'm in my 20s and unable to move out, I'm still forced to listen to their arguing. About being physically abused, my stepmom would deprive me of food bring a scale into the kitchen in front of my step-siblings and force me to weigh myself before I ate. Oh my god, that is so fucking horrible. My dad once asked her why she didn't leave any chicken McNuggets for me, which resulted in a night-long argument about how my fat ass shouldn't have gotten up to get some when I made them. My younger stepbrother then consoled me saying, don't listen to them. They do this all the time. Oh my God. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Not at all. I don't remember any good times with my dad or my stepmom. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about violently killing people when I feel anxious around them darkest secrets I've had sexual fantasies about my family members and even sniffed one of their panties when I was 10 it's one of my worst memories and I'm not sure why I did it I feel like a disgusting piece of shit you are not a disgusting piece of shit and that is so in the realm of what curious kids do so you are you're not abnormal Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I get aroused thinking of incest and sexual abuse happening to someone else, especially involving involving women. It makes me feel like a piece of shit. I wish I could straight I could like straight vanilla sex like most women. I got a book for you to read. Um it's called The Erotic Mind by Jack Morin, M-O-R-I-N, and it's all about sexual fantasies and anxiety that we have around what turns us on and He's done a lot of studying on it, and it's actually the moral hurdle or the anxiety that we have over the situation that actually makes it arousing for us. So it's usually the things that turn us on are in direct contrast to what our social and moral values are. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to seriously inquire my dad. There's nothing I can think of saying to him. What, if anything, do you wish for? A completely new life. If I had the money, I would move to a new state and change everything I can about my identity. And I think about this a lot. Have you shared? Well, you know, here's a thought. If you get to the point where you can move out of the house, just change your life. Change your, your geographic. You know, you don't have to move to another town to put people in your life behind you it may be easier if it's a small town but you're still going to be wherever you go so finding a way to advocate for ourselves is much much more important than changing cities because if we can't set boundaries or you know filter toxic people out of our lives there's no place in the world is going to be safe and is going to be a fertile place for us to to grow Have you shared these things with others? I've shared none of this with anyone before because I'm scared of what might happen if I do. I've kept it to myself. That breaks my heart that you have kept all of this inside because you sound like such a sweet, sensitive person who has experienced such trauma. And then you're traumatizing yourself on top of it by shaming yourself. And hey, this is the pot calling the kettle black, you know. I... I, it's much easier for me to give advice than it is for me to take my own advice. So I know how hard it can be to be kind to to ourselves. But I can tell you the, the the times I am able to do it, it's a really freeing feeling. And I think a support group and therapy would be a really great place for you to begin to let go of some of the shame and to let people love you because you're lovable. You're lovable, and you're worthy of love. You don't have to do anything to be worthy of love. That applies to anybody. Even people who have done terrible things are worthy of love. They may not be worthy of getting out of jail, but they're still worthy of love. Thank you so much for uh, for that survey. That really... Uh, it was intense, but uh, you, went, you went really deep, and I appreciate that. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself a uh, medical doctor. And they write, the moment of sudden quiet that happens when a house full of people drinking and talking exits, and you say you forgot your keys so you can stand in your living room for a few moments. It's deafening in the most beautiful way. That is that is a great one. So I guess you're standing in the other person's living room because why would you need your car keys if it was your own place? Yeah, I always say my favorite Christmas present is the silence after everybody leaves. <laughs> well, this is an interesting one. The smell of my girlfriend's BO. After only a day or two, it makes me feel like I'm 17 again. Supposedly Napoleon would tell, uh, I forget what his, his lover's name was, um, to not bathe for like a week when he would be coming home from from war, because cause war doesn't smell enough. You need you need you need a week of bo to clean the smell of war out of your nostrils. Uh, I love the way my cat lets out a little meow every time I sneeze, no matter where I am in the house. She always says "bless you." My 1994 Camry that belonged to my late grandmother and has been mine for two years. It every so often reminds me of being a child and being driven to the dentist's office, but mostly it makes me feel like an adult. When I eat disgusting takeout in my front seat, parked, I can almost feel her with her OCD and cleanliness clutching her pearls, and nothing makes me feel more pleased with my progress. I love the set smell of someone else smoking a cigarette on a cool temperature day. I quit five years ago and don't have cravings, but God do I love the smell sometimes. That is interesting how cigarettes do smell different depending on how cold out it is. They they do I don't necessarily enjoy the smell of cigarette smoke, but it it is uh the colder it is the, the less uh shitty it smells. I love when I fully let go of my ambitions. The moment where I decide that I can just play a video game all day or regress into a bad TV marathon and stay up late. That moment is everything. One hour later, I hate myself again. And I love the first bite of food I love, followed by the knowledge that there is more where that came from. I experience that on the nights when I can't sleep and I have to go eat a bowl of raisin bran. It's actually become two bowls of raisin bran. In that first bite, and I know that I have the rest of that bowl, and probably another bowl, and it's so good it's It feels like my body's getting a massage from the inside out and then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself mischaracterized, and they write, "I love when I get out of bed in t-shirt and shorts, messy hair and a sleepy, swollen face, and my partner says, "You look cute." With this little giggle he puts behind his voice that lets me know he's serious. I love my partner's laugh when something really strikes him funny. His laugh kind of tumbles out of him and is such a beautiful sound. He's always making me laugh. I'm an easy target. It's less often something, it's less often something really catches him. I just love it. 10 years now and I really just love him. I love glancing out the kitchen window at my 13 and a half year old dog while he happens to be in the middle of one of those Zen moments. You know, when a dog is just standing there, sniffing the air and looking in a particular direction, and you know they sense something that is just beyond this physical plane. The breeze just catching the tips of his ears. He is so pure. I love that my other nine and a half year old dog does this thing we termed preening. She will leave the room, go to the bedroom, and just roll around on her bed in her blankets. You can hear the scuffle of breath and static and toes tapping the walls. Occasionally she gets so worked up she barks. If you try to watch, she usually stops. Although she likes our vocal encouragement from time to time and will sometimes preen the couch where we can see, it's mostly just for her. It's like she is petting herself. This dog has nearly died twice now, and I just love her comebacks. I love my body. I know that is rare for a lot of people, and I feel really blessed to finally love my body and myself. I committed to a healthier lifestyle, and my body responded really quickly, like she was just waiting for me to go. I had a great foundation of self-love from my upbringing, but never loved my body. Now it is so strong and responsive. I still struggle with eating and digestive issues, but that too will be a matter of discipline. And I know my body will respond like she was just waiting to go. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you guys for all your surveys and all your support. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you are not alone. So not alone. And... uh, I I appreciate this community so so much. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked fucked up up in some weird
0: way.